Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Well, good evening everyone and tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome to the first Auckland Conversations event of 2018. I'm Bernard Hickey and I'll be facilitating the conversation this evening. These conversations provide an opportunity to inspire and stimulate your thinking about the challenges around Auckland. I'm sure we all are inspired and stimulated every day about, <laughs> around the challenges of Auckland, and here's a great chance to think about it in a deeper way and start uh, talking about what we do next. Because tonight we focus on transport and the 10-year budget and Auckland plan 2050 consultation, which is open today and will run until the 28th of March. So mark, mark that in your calendars. We want to hear from as many of you as possible on the consultation topics during this month. And from today, you can have your say at vis and visit akhaveyoursay.nz. So it's akhaveyoursay.nz to find out more about this consultation and provide your feedback or you can get hard copies of the feedback form and more information can be found at the stand at the back of the room. So if you, you want to do the, the analogue thing, the stand at the back of the room, the digital thing, akhaveyoursay.nz. And thank you for joining us tonight. It's great to have such a fantastic turnout. Um, who would have thought a, a boring discussion about transport policy would get so many people out and about? Perhaps we should have um, charged for people to come in. That would have uh, helped pay for the transport, perhaps. Uh, or maybe pay-per-view, because of course this is being streamed live. Uh, more popular, perhaps, than the Joseph Parker fight. Uh, and maybe more blood on the floor by the end of it, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, it's great to have you all here tonight. Um, and there will be live streaming uh, of this event uh, at both the Auckland Conversations and the New Zealand Herald websites. Just a couple of housekeeping notes to start with. In the unlikely event of an emergency, an alarm will sound and will be directed out of the building by our ushers, so look out for those. Bathrooms are located at the back of the room to the left of the bar, so uh, just around the corner there. Um, we also have to thank our Auckland Conversations partner, the sponsor, Resine, and our Auckland partner, South Base Construction, and all of the program supporters. Tonight, uh, we're going to be joined by a group of panellists from Greater Auckland, uh, the website, formerly known as Transport Blog, Auckland Transport, uh, McGreedy, Winder & Co, and Infrastructure New Zealand to talk about transport in Auckland. The format tonight, we're first going to have a discussion amongst the panellists, we're going to hear from the Mayor, and then there'll be a chance for uh, people here to ask questions, uh, both uh, through an interesting new interactive tool that we've got uh, tonight called Slido. And if you've got a smartphone with you, um, who, who actually doesn't have a smartphone at the moment? Oh, we've got someone at the back. Is it a Nokia? Yes. Well, if you've got a smartphone, what you need to do to be able to lodge an online question is to go to slido.com, that's S-L-I-D-O.com, and enter the event code X, that's uppercase X115, X115. That's for asking your question. And uh, there'll be a, a roll of questions uh, in front of us here at the panel, and we'll answer those questions through the evening. 
There will be a time too for people who want to put up their hand and ask a question at the end, and that will be entertaining. Uh, we'll also, and uh, we're also keen to be as inclusive as possible and accessible. Uh, there is, of course, on-demand viewing of the event. There will be a full transcript and captioning of the event, and the presentations will be available on the Auckland Conversations website in the next few days. I wanted to, before we introduce uh, the Mayor and our panel, just have a, a quick view around this amazing place of Auckland and think about transport. But before I do, I want to introduce you to a key piece of my personal toolbox. Can anyone see what this is? It is an AT Hopcart. And the reason this is interesting is that I live in Wellington. So what am I doing with an AT Hopcart? Well, actually, I find, and I, I have to come to Auckland every couple of weeks, uh, for a day or two, that now this is the way I get around the city, both from the airport and into the CBD and around the CBD. I'm finding, as a Wellingtonian, that I have to think about Auckland's transport situation, and I'm sure everyone here is in that situation. Now, in particular, we've had a change of government, and there is a different mood, if you like, in the room about how our transport should be planned for, how it's going to be paid for. And of course, we've got the, the news that came through just before Christmas that the new government is keen to bring in a 10 cent per litre uh, fuel levy from July the 1st to help pay for the transport infrastructure that will have to be put into the city to deal with the real pressures, the one to two billion dollars a year of costs from congestion charges. The pressures of our population growth, which at 2 to 3% has been much faster than we had expected and which transport planners had expected. We're going to talk tonight, and I'm sure you're already aware about the discussions around congestion charging, you know, a, a charge for perhaps going on to the motorway in the long, long future. Other ways to manage this real challenge we have in Auckland. It's going to be a fun discussion tonight. I'm, I'm sort of serious about pay-per-view. I think we'd, we'd, we'd have a big audience online. Uh, but first, I'd like to introduce the Mayor, Phil Goff. So please, uh, Mayor Goff, come, please come to the stage and, and give us a rundown on how you see things. Kia ora koutou, and thank you very much, Bernard, for that uh, introduction, despite the fact he's a Wellingtonian. He's been incredibly helpful in helping us address our, our housing challenges on the housing uh, task force, and secretly, like everybody else in the country, he wants to be an Aucklander, and that's, uh, that's the basis of our problem. Um, can I acknowledge tonight uh, our elected representatives here? I might not have uh, caught everybody, but uh, I know that Councillor Desley Simpson is here, uh, Pippa Coombe, Chair of the Waitamata Local Board, and Board Members Richard Northey, Adriana Christie and Rob Thomas. So welcome. It's always good to have elected representatives here listening to what you have to say on an issue that's really important. Can I acknowledge also the panel members, uh, Patrick Reynolds, uh, Cynthia Gillespie, Peter Winder and Stephen Selwood. It's an excellent panel and I think we're going to get real value out of the interchange of ideas and discussion that comes from that group. Uh, I'm not surprised to see so many people here. I think that transport is the single most frustrating issue that we have to tolerate in our city. 
I live in the south of Auckland. If I don't leave before six o'clock in the morning, it takes me twice as long to get into town. It takes me an hour and a half to get into town if I leave at seven in the morning. If I, don't, uh, if I leave before 6.30 at night to go home, uh, the same sort of ratio applies. It's frustrating. It's uh, eating into our productivity. I think the costs of congestion are something like one to two billion dollars on a conservative basis. Uh, and incredibly frustrating from the viewpoint of the time that you might otherwise be enjoying with family or doing things that you'd rather be doing uh, other than being parked on a motorway if you travel by car. The 10-year budget released today is open for consultation and it's open from today to the 28th of March and we'd certainly encourage everybody to have their say. Uh, there will be an Our Auckland being published in a physical form with a feedback form inside looking at the key proposals of the 10-year uh, the budget, uh, but there will also be a series of have your say meetings and uh, consultation meetings and we'll be doing some independently uh, organised surveys to get a cross-section so that we know what Aucklanders are thinking. Firstly, I suppose we begin, and I want to go a little bit broader than transport and setting out what the vision for the city is. I think my vision for the city is that we are a world-class city, that we are a city that is globally competitive, that can attract talent and retain talent to live in our city, that gives our people choice and opportunity, that's a diverse and inclusive city, that's environmentally pristine, and that protects our quality of life. Now you consider all of those things that make up what helps create a world-class city, uh, you acknowledge that transport and your ability to move around that city is at the heart of it. We know that Auckland, despite its challenges, is an attractive place to live. We are growing by 50,000 people a year. That's an over 3% uh, increase in population every three years we add a population the size of the city of Tauranga, which I think is our fourth or fifth biggest city. So that is great. It's wonderful to live in a city that's growing and that has the diversity that growth brings and the, the choice and the opportunity that it brings, but it also challenges us. It challenges us uh, in particular in our social and our physical infrastructure, which has not kept pace with that growth. In the recent past, we've had a significant level of underinvestment in infrastructure, and that means a backlog in the work that needs to be done. For example, we don't have enough houses. We need 14,000 extra houses a year. We are only creating 7,000. That creates problems with shortages and affordability. We haven't invested enough in water services. We haven't tackled historical problems like sewage overflows every time it rains onto our beaches. And of course, in the area of transport, that underinvestment is most obvious. We are still adding 800 extra cars a week to our roads in Auckland. I was reading the congestion question, the report the other day, and they used another statistic. They said in the last four years, the number of kilometres being travelled each year in Auckland is increased by 1.6 billion kilometres. Just consider those two figures, and it's not hard, therefore, to understand why we have the problems that we do. 
So the focus of our 10-year budget is on addressing those key challenges and on finding ways to fund our infrastructure given the two key constraints we have. The first constraint is that we have already fully utilised the easy way of funding infrastructure. Infrastructure is intergenerational, you can borrow to pay for it, but we are close to the debt to revenue ratio uh, that constrains our ability to borrow further. The Standard & Poor's sets our credit rating based on a 270% debt to revenue ratio. We are coming close to 265%. So borrowing is no longer an easy answer, and rates has never been an easy answer given the sensitivity of rates. People in this audience will probably be able to tell me what your quarterly rates demand was that came in a couple of weeks ago, but you probably can't tell me how much you paid in income tax last week, and hence the problem of sensitivity of rates as a source of revenue. So with the last government to build transport infrastructure and housing infrastructure, we invested new ways of overcoming this constraint. Special purpose vehicles where the debt appears on the books of a government agency and not Auckland's. And we were able to raise about $800 million last year in that way towards transport infrastructure for new subdivisions and other infrastructure. We were also pleased that the last government finally came to realise that a little bit more of its revenue needed to come back to our city. Now, I'm not asking for anything that is out of proportion to our contribution to New Zealand, but I do know with 34% of the population and 38% of the GDP of the country, we were paying masses in road taxes, in petrol taxes, in income tax, GST, uh, and in company tax. And what we're saying is some of that, more of that money has to come back to the city where growth pressures are creating the biggest problems. Because when you lose $2 billion a year in congestion, that's not a cost just to us in Auckland, it's a cost to the whole country, and therefore it's an issue that the whole country needs to meet. We now have a new government, and that has produced some advantages from my perspective. The first advantage is an acknowledgement that the focus of our transport needs to be not simply on more and more motorways that quickly get clogged up, but on public transport, on better utilisation of existing networks, and on active modes such as cycling and walking. And I welcome the fact that the government is fully committed to a light rail system. There is just a few of us in this audience that still remember when the trams ran and carried most of the, uh, the, the commuter traffic in Auckland. And we are now at the point where our buses are reaching bus congestion levels in Simon Street, Queen Street, Dominion Road. Light rail needs to be the answer if we are to move people more effectively and efficiently around our city. Out down the isthmus to Mount Roskill, across to Onehunga, across uh, uh, the Manuko Harbour, uh, out to the airport, not just because of the travellers, but because in the precinct of Manukau Airport you've got the fastest growing uh, employment in the country after the CBD in Auckland. And in funding light rail, I would certainly encourage the government to consider whether in line with its announced policy position of using the National Land uh, Transport Fund for things other than roads, 
that, land, that light rail is certainly land transport, and I think it would be a very good idea to fund our light rail from that source and would encourage the government to think about that. I would also, but I won't, <laughs> I, retrospectively you have to ask why Auckland paid for the city rail link, the only piece of heavy rail infrastructure in the country, paid half by a council rather than fully by the central government. But I, I think it's probably unrealistic to expect a retrospective decision to give us our $1.7 billion back in that regard. Uh, I'd also encourage the government to consider broadening uh, our, our revenue base. When I've looked at how Australian cities fund their infrastructure, through their state government, it's through devolution of GST, it's through a, 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 a payroll tax, it's through sales tax. Eric Garcetti was telling me he's funding his light rail through an extra imposition on a sales tax in Los Angeles. We don't have those options available, and I'm not necessarily asking for those specific options. But I would ask this government, as I asked the last government, and probably expect the same reply, that you know, when you've got a city our size, devolution of funding such as a GST uh, would make sense. The government, I think, takes out of Auckland $260 million a year by imposing GST on our rates. So they add to, if we increased your rates theoretically by 10%, which we're not intending to do, uh, they, would, they would take that up to, to uh, uh, 11 or 12% with GST. Well, if they're taking the money based on our rate take, giving that back to us would enable us to do more things for ourselves. So one of the things I, I have to applaud, however, in the change of government is that uh, an agreement to enable us to charge a regional fuel tax. Now, I know taxes aren't popular with anyone, probably including myself, but at the last election I went out, and if you attended any of your, the meetings I went to, you would have heard my statement, which was crystal clear, if you want us to do something about transport problems in Auckland, you've got to give us the financial means to do so. And I said that I would be promoting a regional fuel tax because it was more in line with, with relating what you were paying with what you were using in terms of the transport system. We have in the council an interim transport levy, $114 flat rate across everybody. If you're a pensioner that never goes out of your home, you pay the same amount as Sky City pays as a big corporate. That is inequitable, that will go. A regional fuel tax will raise two to three times as much money probably as much as $1.3 to $1.5 billion over the 10-year budget period, and it will enable us to do a lot more. We cannot expect provincial New Zealand to pay for the transport system that we have in Auckland. We have to make a contribution ourselves, and if we were to put it on rates, it would be another 8 to 9% on your overall rate increase, which will be about 2.5%. I think this is a better way of doing it. It's not quite demand management, but at least it has components of that. Can I say that any money raised uh, is going to be hypothecated? So you know that when you pay your regional fuel tax, it will go into transport. It won't be subverted into any other area. And it will go into a broad pool to fund the Auckland Transport Alignment Project, uh, which will provide for projects right across our city. Now, I'd love 
that I don't have the time, but I would love to have talked about what will be in the Auckland Transport Alignment Project. It's vital for all of us. But because we had a late election, well, an election close to um, our 10-year um, budget, and because there are new policies from a new government, we are in the process of working through that. We should know by the end of March. But I imagine that it will be about funding um, the public transport system that we need, about extending busways, uh, about making better use of existing transport, of making sure that we have networks for cycling, including, I hope, a sky path across the Harbour Bridge as quickly as possible to connect the North Shore for the first time. You'll be able to walk and cycle between the shore and the city. I think all of those things are important. And I think uh, also connecting the airport uh, by a mass transit system to the Puanui railway station would be a quick win for the city. We're working through those options. It's not easy, but I want to finish on this point. Our 10-year budget in 2015 set aside $7.9 billion for transport expenditure over the, the decade. In this 10-year plan, three years later, we will be increasing that to 11 to $12 billion. Is it enough? No, it's never enough. Will it make a difference? Yes, it will make a real difference. But if we don't run fast, we won't even stand still, we'll fall backwards. Congestion will get worse unless there is serious investment and serious alternatives to the use of the single occupant motor vehicle. I hope you enjoy the panel discussion tonight. Thank you for being here to engage in the conversation. Please take part in the Have Your Say event for our 10-year budget. It's your city, it's your money that we're spending. We need to know what you're thinking about it. Thank you very much. No reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tato katoa. And sorry for going too long. Yes, I can see there's going to be an awful lot of people running fast in the next couple of months as these big decisions are taken about spending billions of dollars in the next um, decade or so. Money spent by the Auckland Council, but also by the central government, and it's going to be a, a big national debate. So let's get cracking here with an excellent set of panellists who can dive into the fun policy detail of all of these implications of what we're talking about here. Starting with uh, Patrick Reynolds, if Patrick could come to the stage, because uh, Patrick, I am a, a big reader of um, uh, blog sites and uh, a publisher of blog sites, and Transport Blog was a real pioneer in helping to uh, broaden and deepen a debate uh, in a particular place. And of course now it is the Greater Auckland website. Patrick is a photographer and an urbanist and uh, heavily involved in uh, fostering that debate. Patrick, thank you very much for coming to talk to us today. And it wouldn't be a panel without um, someone who's actually on the inside who can see what's um, happening with all that planning and spending and operations. That's Cynthia Gillespie, who is the Chief Strategy and Development Officer at Auckland Transport. Cynthia, welcome to the stage. There are plenty of people with vested interests uh, in, in the debate, but it's great to have someone who's independent, who's outside of the process, who can, who's been there before, who has uh, seen this money spent in various different places and can have some sort of background corporate knowledge about what's going on. And Peter Winder, who is the director of McGreedy, Winder & Co Consultants, 
please come to the stage, Peter, because uh, I'm sure he'll be, ab be able to contribute to the debate uh, in a really detailed way. Peter, thank you very much. And we also have uh, Stephen Selwood, who is the Chief Executive of Infrastructure New Zealand. We heard the Mayor talk about the need to spend 11 to $12 billion on transport infrastructure over the next decade, and frankly, it should be a lot more. Uh, Stephen uh, is in a great position to tell us about um, some of those needs around infrastructure uh, development and has some, some, uh, some views on how that should be done. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion, and it's going to be better than the Parker fight. I'm sure it is. Uh, um, so I'd like to get things cracking uh, with a discussion about this 10-year budget and the Auckland plan for 2050. It's out there, the consultation document's there, you can all see it. But I wanted to ask Patrick first, you've had a look at this document, what do you think it should include? Well, uh, there are two documents, of course. The high altitude Auckland plan is a plan uh, and the, the other one is indeed a budget. I'm glad it's been called a budget. So they're quite different things. And a, a plan is a strategy document that should encapsulate values and vision. Um, and as you go through the plan, I think you can, you can, most of us will agree that the, the words are fine, um, the aspirations are noble, uh, but what I feel is critically lacking from it, uh, and for it to be effective, is some actual numbers, some actual real aspirations, some we're going to do this, uh, even over a long time period. And if you, if you look around the world, you can see that other cities do this um, really precisely. So uh, my current favourite is the London Transport for London plan, which has really, really firm um, ambitions, uh, totally carbon neutral transport system by 2050 zero deaths and injuries, serious injuries in the transport system by 2041. Um, it has uh, re uh, reduction targets for vehicle kilometres travelled, so um, complete reductions. It, a target is reducing the amount of driving that happens, because none of these uh, aims can be met without people driving less. Uh, so before it gets into the particulars of what we're going to build, how we're going to offer a greater public transport system or, or better cycleways, it, it lists why, why it's doing it. So you can get buy-in from, especially from the bureaucracy. I think this is a really critical thing. Currently, I feel the Auckland plan, and I do believe vision documents are really important. You've got to, you've got to show value, you've got to show why you're doing something. But you've got to have real targets in it. Otherwise, the bureaucracy can just kind of drift. It doesn't have any impulse to achieve anything. We, we don't have, and when we come down to the budget level, we don't have an objective thing to measure it against. We don't, we don't have something to say, well, will this reduce the, the carbon emissions from the transport sector? Will this reduce deaths and in injuries? And, and we heard before the, the Mayor say that, that congestion is calculated as costing Auckland between $1 and $2 billion a year economically. Well, death and injury is, is, is a similar figure. This should be, we shouldn't just talk about traffic congestion. Yeah, it's really frustrating when you're stuck in congestion, but it's, it's quite annoying to be killed as well. <laughs> and, and it's a disaster for wider families, uh, and we're, we've got an epidemic at the moment. We're on a complete rebound after a, a, a long period of improvements in that. At the moment, the, the road, our road network is incredibly unsafe. And if we have a document that says safety is our priority and then we go on to prioritise uh, vehicle speed, well, we're lying with the first statement. So we need these vision documents to be much, hard, much more hard-headed than they are. So to put you on the spot, Patrick, what should be those targets? 
Well, they should be uh, zero carbon emissions from the transport sector by, say, 2050. I mean, they need to be they need to be analysed really carefully. We we have a situation uh, at the moment where uh, the uh, morning peak into the into the city centre, um, we have um, a, a vehicle mode share of below 50 percent. 47 percent of people entering the uh, city centre and the AM peak are driving their vehicles. Now, in 1994, that was 80 percent. We can continue that trend, but the best way to continue that trend is to have it as a real target. So let's say by 2025 we want that to be 20%. In the Auckland plan we've got things called projections, which say we might get to this thing, but they don't say we should try to get to this thing. Because in London they have targeted that. Number. They have absolute targets, and, and the Mayor is on the block saying I'm going to deliver this, my policies will lead to this. So, I mean, some people think, oh, 30-year plans, it's all waffly, we can't tell anything. But if there are real, real targets that we have to be on our way to, then that makes the, the shorter term plans measurable against them and, and can concentrate minds enormously, especially by the middle level bureaucrats who have a tendency to just want to do what they've always done. So let's say we did target those things, which seem pretty ambitious, you know, yeah. going from 44% to 20% of uh, you know, private vehicle movements going to the city. Peter. Is the current you know, plan there, 11 to 12 billion of spending, is that enough to achieve anything like that? Um, <clears throat> no, it's not, um, not even close. And, and I suppose for me, if, if I look back over the last 20 years, we spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of effort trying to get the strategy right and having debates about whether it's motorways or public transport and other things. But all of that happens in the context where there has never been enough money to spend and we still don't have enough money to spend. So to me, it's sort of like, don't worry too much about the strategy, follow the money and make sure that there's enough money to invest and I'm sure we're capable of spending it wisely in a whole lot of things. The work that Stephen and I were involved in in 2015 estimated at that stage that we needed to be spending about 400 million a year more than we currently are. Um, last year's estimate was that was about $600 million a year. You know, for, for since 2015, construction costs have gone up. We've added a whole light rail system to the strategy and thinking about what we need to do. Um, you know, where we're at now, um, great that the government said yes to a regional fuel tax, and I applaud the council for, for pursuing that, but it's still nowhere near sufficient to deal with the level of investment that is necessary both in um, building capital stuff and in operating the system. So um, let's, um, let's scare the heck out of an awful lot of ratepayers and taxpayers around the country and come up with an actual number that it could be. Are we, so, because this, this um, budget talks about 11 to 12 billion, what, are, what do we really need to achieve the sorts of things that Patrick's talking about? Well, as I said, it's, it's in the order of another 600 million a year. Um, and that's not a new number, that's been around for a long time. There are, there are, and there'll be an argument as to whether you could do it for more or less, but it's going to be of that order no matter how you come at it. And, and yes, it's a scary number, um, but it, that to me is the elephant in the room. That's the thing that Auckland and the government actually have to grapple with because the current funding tools simply won't take us there. And, and you know, as I said, wonderful that there's a regional fuel tax on the table that wasn't several years ago, but it's still not at a level that's remotely close to where we need to be in terms of the total amount of revenue on the table. 
So let's let's go there. Let's go to those funding tools. Uh, Stephen, what's what's your view on how we can bridge this funding gap? Well, look, this is not really rocket science. There's only a few forms of funding. One is taxes, which is the one we're talking about today, and it's that side of property rates tax increases. Two and a half percent seems very modest given our uh, investment backlog. Uh, I would have thought that should have been going up by more than two and a half percent, and I think Aucklanders should be supporting that. I mean, you, you've got to make a choice. Do you accept what you've currently got and just incrementally grind to a faster and faster halt, or do you actually invest in a better future? And that requires thinking about spending a bit more. The second option is user pays in some sort of shape or form. And we have to make a decision, I think, in Auckland sooner rather than later to shift to some sort of pricing regime on our road system. You know, if, if uh, we put another uh, 10 cent per litre on petrol, as is proposed, plus GST, uh, once you take off the interim transport levy in place, then we're probably netting about another 100 million uh, per annum. Well, there's 15% of the problem solved. What are we going to do about the other uh, five to seven? And actually, I think the number is now much bigger than 600 million because we knew uh, when we did the ATAP uh, analysis last year that that was actually going to make things worse, even if we were investing in that uh, pace. So the number is bigger than 600 million a year. The only thing that's going to move the needle anywhere near that would be something like a motorway congestion charge. And just to put that into context for you, there's a million cars a day join the Auckland motorway network on a, on a daily basis, a million. Just imagine if they paid on average two bucks uh, for every trip. There's two million bucks a day. Now there will be a bit of a demand management effect obviously because of the pricing. So you're not going to get a straight 365 days a year times two million, but you're going to get somewhere between four and five hundred million revenue out of that. Now that sort of a charge is not a punitive charge. And if we were smart about how we levied that charge and made it variable so that people who got on the motorway uh, at peak would pay a higher rate than those that got on the motorway off peak, then you could start to manage demand as well as raise a heck of a lot of money. And, it's, and by that process you will also encourage the sort of mode shift, people will make choices about when and how they travel, uh, they would make uh, decisions about what route they travel and do they really have to be all on the road at the same time. And maybe employers might start to think about, actually, do I, do, do I really have to run a nine to five working day? Could I be more flexible with working hours? And it's all about getting the incentives right. Um, and unless we make bold decisions around that, we're just gonna keep on tinkering away at this problem and it's just gonna get worse and worse and worse. It's but time now to be bold. So. Wouldn't that, though, make it really difficult for poorer people living on the edges of town who have to go back and forth across town to maybe two or three jobs, dropping off kids? Um, wouldn't they really find it difficult to pay that two, three dollars to get onto the motorway? And wouldn't they just go around to the other smaller roads around it and block those up? Well, here's the, here's the really interesting thing, right? So at the Southern Motorway, everyone knows the Mount Wellington crossover beside Sylvia Park, and the motorway narrows down two lanes at that point. At morning peak, a thousand cars a day get through that point because the traffic is travelling so slow, we are using the motorway system at its most inefficient way. If traffic was able to travel at 60 kilometres an hour through that point, 
then you would actually get 3,000 cars. The road has capacity to put 3,000 cars at that speed. So if you were to charge a price that would balance the supply and demand uh, so that cars could travel at 60 kilometres an hour, and not only cars could travel at 60 kilometres an hour, but so could uh, public transport services, buses, express service buses in the same sort of corridor. So you're starting to provide viable options for people who may be not able to provide the $2 toll. But at the end of the day, those people will have choices because they can uh, take the parallel route on the Southern Motorway, if they, uh, sorry, on the uh, Great South Road if they so choose, uh, or maybe um, other forms of public transport or moving around the city might be possible because we will have the revenue stream to enable the debt to fund the public transport necessary. But if we keep on just sort of burying our head in the sand and say, oh gosh, it's going to have a cost impact, well, I'm sorry, we're not ever going to make uh, the decisions that we need to actually address the problem. So let's um, look in perhaps in a broader way at the amount of investment that's needed and also the idea of using congestion charges. This is something a bit broader and maybe longer term than just a motorway charge. I wanted to bring Cynthia into the conversation here because Cynthia comes to us from Australia and has studied how congestion charging schemes and other places deal with these sorts of infrastructure challenges. And I wondered if you could tell us, you know, what are the sorts of things they're doing elsewhere to try and deal with these issues and, and could they be applicable here? Thank you. Uh, just before I start, I just want to take it back a step. The this discussion that we're having now in Auckland is no different to any other city in the world. Everyone, if you gave me, and uh, New, York, New York's a classic example, they've just appointed a new CEO into the transport for New York system. He needs something like his uh, estimated $39 billion to make his transport system work. We can have this conversation for the next 30 years. In fact, the do first document I picked up when I started in the job six months ago was a document written in 1965 that says you have to invest in public transport and you have to invest in infrastructure equally. Well, you've, in you've invested in infrastructure the whole way through and you've only just started investing in public transport. We've got to start to change the conversation. The conversation can't be, we need more money. There is no more money. It's not coming from anywhere. We have to change the way we're thinking as Auckland to move. And you know, it is still about investment. We've still got to talk about how we're getting people the mode share change to, onto public transport. And to make, that, to make that effective, we've got to invest more in public transport. And that's, you know, that's part of the conversation, it's not all the conversation. The active transport piece that's been so effective around the city is a small component of it. The thing that I see is that we have continually to have conversations about we want to in, introduce a congestion levy, and yes, they do work, and they have worked in other parts of, this, of the world um, for different reasons. Uh, Singapore's different to London experience, um, and, and uh, US is a different story again. But the, the, the story that you continually see is we continue to manage transport systems as we have to have it, congestion management is the panacea to the to, you know to panacea to the congestion issue. The public transport is, it's not. We've got to start managing the, the transport system as a system and it is a combination of a spend on all of those things. So we have to have, you know, we've been given a $12 billion envelope. We now have to work out what is the best 
way to spend that. We will not fix congestion under in a $12 million envelope. We won't. I won't fix congestion. You could give me $60 billion in the next 10 years. I won't fix congestion because you will always fill those roads. That's how it works in every city in the world. So we have to start the conversation about what will make people move to public transport. The mode shift for public transport at the moment, while we've still got, we've got a celebrated 20 million people moving on the public transport system and it's hugely successful and it is only seven years old, what we've found is that the mode share is, over the last 10 years, is only about 1% of the population. So while the public transport has grown, so has the use of cars. That's the conversation we've got to have. Why do people want to use cars? Is public transport not effective? Is it not efficient? You know, I saw an article today, and I don't know who wrote it in the paper, about how long it takes to get from West Lynn into the city. It took the cyclist 31 minutes, New Lynn, sorry, 31 minutes. It took the bus 57 minutes. It took to drive 56 minutes. People will not shift modes while it's slower to go on public transport than it is to drive. So that's the story we've got to have. That's where we've got to start to invest is in not just building infrastructure for the sake of road infrastructure. It has to be about public transport focus. And you know, Patrick talked rightly about the safety issue. That's an issue that it's emerging, emerging pretty quickly in um, Auckland as well. But that's where we have to have that discussion. How do we actually, as a community, work out what's effective for people to do that mode share? That's the discussion we need to have. And that's what we need to understand at Auckland Transport. What will help you get into a mindset where it's easier for you to get public transport than it is today? And just, just one thing. Just, um, just one thing on the debates about public transport projects. We often have these big debates about the big honking project, you know, the CRL or the Waterview Tunnel. Um, you talked about a system. Um, should we also be talking about the second tier projects? So coming from uh, a country where local government doesn't invest and doesn't have to pay for strategic assets, which I find alarming, you know, in terms of you people sitting in the audience have bought trains, you are paying for a tunnel. It's not done in Australia. It's simply not sustainable in the future for that to happen. Ratepayers can't pay it. The Mayor will never be able to cap your and keep your rates at 2.5% if you continue to invest and have to pay for strategic assets. That's the first issue that I see. and. And we've got to have that conversation. It's a really difficult conversation with people from Wellington. But you know, that's the first issue. But I quite like the mere suggestion of asking for the billion dollars back. Uh, and, um, well, I would be. And, and Stephen Joyce is a bit quiet at the moment. Maybe he could come up with a checkbook. Yep. But while we're focusing on those big projects, and everybody knows politicians love the big projects, you can cut a ribbon. And everybody loves them. It's, a, it's a, the same the worldwide. I want to talk about, uh, you know, the light. I want to talk about the tunnel. I want to talk about the big roads. The thing that I'm seeing is, and the feedback that I'm getting from community and local boards is that we are missing that secondary level. So we're focusing on the big projects at the expense of what's actually happening on our roads, unsealed roads, unsafe roads, you know. What and the public transport system. So we've got to have, we've got to step away from being attracted to these fantastically big, sexy projects. Am I allowed to use that term in public? 
Do you use it in New Zealand? <laughs> so, you know, we've got to start thinking about that next level down and what it actually is delivering, what we as Auckland Transport are delivering for the community. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that I've noticed when I first got here is that we're not having that conversation about really what's happening on the local roads for the local people, um, you know, so that's, you know, that's part of the that, issue that I think is Cynthia is completely right. Um, we have this very odd situation where the, we keep electing a, a mayors who uh, stand on a platform of providing uh, strategic assets, um, but they don't control that decision. It's controlled down in that little fishing village at the bottom of the island. And, hey, that's, uh, my, that's my home you're talking they, about. They control, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we have a, there is an imbalance, and it's not only the question that um, nearly 40% of the GDP is generated by the city, also 50% of the growth happens here. Um, we, we do need to move to a situation, hopefully we have with a new government that understands the value of Auckland and not just the cost. So we, need to, we do need to get Auckland Transport and the Mayor out of big strategic assets and actually into providing the local stuff. But can I just say one thing about this enormous problem with, you know, we need infinite money. It, it, it's really important what you don't build as well as what you do build. And that last ATAP, which not only said we, we had to build all these gazillion things, including mini motorways parallel to motorways all over the shop, is it also said, and you know, you referred to this, Stephen, earlier, that the modelling said it just gets worse. And part of that reason is we're still building last century's idea as we've moved to proposing to build this century's. We we, yes, we need to find more money and more uh, creative uh, uh, sources of, of funding and spreading multi-generationally, but we've also got to stop building the bad shit. Steve, can, I, can I just jump in the back of that? Because <laughs> yes, yes, we need to stop building bad stuff, but I'll take you back to the comment the Mayor made at the outset. If we're adding a population the size of Tauranga every three years, then that means that everything that goes with the population of Tauranga needs to be added to Auckland because... They can't all drive. They can't all drive. They can't all drive, but it's not just transport, you know. Hospital beds, schools, water supply, wastewater, the whole lot needs to be funded and that's got to be delivered every three years by the, the, in the, under the current growth rate. And, and I suppose, yeah, reflecting on the discussion today, there's been discussions on and off in Auckland since the mid-90s about some form of congestion charge to try and raise money and deal with this, and, and it hasn't happened. And the current work that's called the congestion questions on a timeline that mean it might, it, by the Mayor's words recently, it, it's not within the next three to four years or, or any time soon after that, which to me says somewhere we, we, we need to come to, to grips with something that might be more achievable than that sort of approach to funding. Perhaps there's a different rationale or engagement with the government about the nature of its revenue sources, as the Mayor's indicated, that gets us into a different space. Because yes, we can, we can focus on more sensible things to build, but my gut tells me at the end of the day, the bottom line will be there simply still won't be enough money within the current funding framework to do what is necessary. There's also quite a bit of efficiency that can be achieved, and I think this is within Auckland Council's uh, power. Uh, at the moment, the plan for how we grow Auckland enables significant growth, in fact, massive growth to the north around Derry Flat, uh, Silverdale, uh, a parallel sort of level of growth out to the west, and then slightly larger again down in the uh, Papakura Drury uh, area and north of Pukekohe. 
And then the, the, the plan is to also allow, allow more urban density within the, the main existing built-up area. But the trouble with that level of intensification is that it's not high density intensification close to public transport, which is fundamental to really getting uh, the sort of numbers that public transport uh, starts to become a viable option for people. But we're subdividing sections in Pakaranga and Mount Roskill and you know, Howick and, um, and out Henderson Way, and people are putting up another house on their existing section, typically not that well aligned to public transport. So wherever there's another house goes up, there's another two or three cars go in that location as well. And by that growth strategy, we're actually increasing the level of car density as much as we are as housing density. So if you think of a growth strategy now that enables growth northwest and south at the same time, thereby creating demand for movement between those three locations, while you're clogging up the middle with urban infill, and you wonder why traffic congestion is getting worse, this is not rocket science. So what we could do is we need scale development and Infrastructure New Zealand is advocating that we should promote uh, a satellite city development, and our argument is to the south for a whole variety of reasons that I won't go into now. But what it, what, effectively what it means is that you could do development around the main trunk line. You would have to put the fourth main line in to enable the capacity. But that sort of scale development is uh, the sort of level of density that you require to really make rail work. And when you think about it, all of the key employment areas for Auckland are in and around the main trunk line to the south. Um, so I'm not just talking 30,000 uh, households down there, but actually building a city of the scale that would attract international investment, would e achieve economies of scale, that would enable modular construction of homes that will bring down the cost of construction, and a design-led city that could enable walking, cycling, live, work, play, and all of those things that we want. So we've kind of got a choice. We can either just keep on doing what we've always done, which is incremental growth everywhere, and trying to backfill the infrastructure after the event, always scrambling for money, and that's the Auckland story. Or we could change uh, how we think about how Auckland grows, but inevitably we are going to need more money, and we're going to have to use our existing transport systems more effectively. So that's where the pricing component is fundamental to progress. So let's, that's, a, that's one view of how it could, plan, could go. What about this other view that I hear sometimes, that um, why are we building all these motorways and railways when we've got this new technology coming? We've got driverless cars, we've got ride sharing, we've got electric bikes, you know, hey, what, why spend all our money, our taxpayer money, our ratepayer money, uh, dream up these new funding schemes when, you know, um, Zuckerberg and uh, Gates and co are going to solve our problems? Patrick? Well, driverless car, however the car is driven, or powered, it's still a car taking up space. And yeah, all, of, all of the evidence that we have currently from, from uh, rideshare companies, Mr Uber is here, I believe, is that they increase congestion in the city. Um, so the idea is fanciful that, that these technologies will decongest our streets by getting more people to take more journeys. Currently, we have an average occupancy of private motor vehicles of 1.1. So there's 1.1 person per vehicle. Once we have vehicles that can drive themselves without people, we will drop the average occupancy of our vehicles below one. <laughs> um, we will send them home to get our homework, we forgot. 
uh, they will be running on errands. So they're, they're called zombie vehicles. So the, the point about AVs at the moment is that they're in a particular point in their, in their development that they are sufficiently far enough away that people can fantasise endlessly about their value. Cynthia. I do, look, I support what Patrick's saying about driverless vehicles, but we've got an issue about congestion and mode share today. We can't have, you know, we can, we should be, there's no doubt we should be watching the future because transport systems have to be a combination of a lot of stuff. And our driverless cars, I love a driverless car because I hate driving. Um, but, you know, the deal is, he's right, as many cars as you put on that network, we've got to stop talking about cars. Let's yeah. start talking about different things. Yeah. Let's start the conversation about, you know, should we have driverless buses? They're out there. Las Vegas put theirs in and they've got a, uh, fleet of 25, they crashed on Thursday, but they've got 25 out there, they're running them around. We've got to start talking about different ways to do technology that is here today. So, you know, Australia's talking about on-demand, and on-demand services in Auckland, so at the moment, you, you, you know, we use a, hot, a spoke and hub model to get people around in, in public transport. But the issue that I see is that we don't have enough, you can't get to the rail stations, it's really hard. Park and rides, you know, you've got low numbers of park and rides. That's yesterday's technology. How do you, you know, on demand is how you ring up and say, I want to move here at this time and you want to take me to a train station, a bus station, or if you're in the city, you know, around. And we need to start using that sort of, that's the future of, of mobility you know, for Auckland at the moment. That's the next generation we, we, that we're talking about. We should watch this stuff. We should be watching mobility as a service. We should be watching what the world's doing. Don't make the mistakes that world make with first generational technology. Most of you in your room should understand that. But we, there's things we have to do now. And the investment in public transport is about that next generation of public transport uplift that will change us having to use cars. We, as I said before, we need to understand what will make you, you use public transport and get out of your cars. So, not, yeah. so what has actually worked overseas to get people to change their culture? Because remember... Have a, a good network. Have a real <laughs> transport network. We've only got one joined up network at the moment, yeah. and that's the driving network. It's really not rocket science. Yeah. You need to be able to walk up and catch the public transport vehicle without having to think about the timetable, yeah. and it needs to take you where you want to go, and you need to not be able to walk too far at the other end yeah. and not get wet. I mean, th none of these things are rocket science. We all understand what they are, but our network is still a long way away from that. E even 10-minute rail frequencies is not just the walk up and catch the next one sort of experience. So you know, that's the direction we need to head in. We need to be realistic that we're not going to bridge the gap between where we are now and that sort of network in a hurry, and it's going to cost a lot of money to get there, but that's the sort of system we need to provide. So are we Equally, talking about the light rail um, proposal that's there at the moment, or more than that? Yeah, more than well, that. Whether it's light, light rail, advanced bus, whatever, the, the keys are travel time. You know, can you do it faster than, faster than the cycle? Is it reliability? Um, can you walk up without thinking about the timetable? Can you do it without getting wet? And, and is it reasonably affordable? Those are the things you've got to be able to deliver. Can I just remind everyone in the room, though, that um, the issue is not just around commutes to and from home to work. Actually, the transport system is also about providing mobility uh, for our entire economy. It's about business uh, trips. It's about getting concrete to the housing and building site. And it's about the commerce, the jobs, 
and everything that drives our society in Auckland. So whilst it's really important to keep a very strong, and I 100% support the focus on improving public transport services and increasing the urban density to enable that to occur, we also have to keep in mind that we're all going to those jobs and those jobs are dependent on getting goods and services to all sorts of people across the city. Most businesses in Auckland, 96% of businesses in Auckland employ 20 or fewer people. That's Stephen, a really important number. But congestion so, is caused by private vehicles. So 77% of, of vehicles on the roads are private occupant, single occupant vehicles. So by, by solving, the, you're absolutely right, I completely agree with you about the really important freight and delivery and tradee task, but they are being held up by all of us sitting in our cars. A reluctant uh, granny or undergraduate has to drive because there's not a good alternative is causing I the agree, congestion. At, at the commuting, but look, I don't know how I'm many not commuting, all day. These it's are all day journeys. Well, yeah, but the primary demand period is during the commuting period, and that's the viable option that public transport can, can address. The, the trips, the business trips that are across the network today on a daily basis, I mean, there used to be a peak hour, or a peak two hours, which was kind of from seven till nine. Well, on almost the entire southern motorway, particularly northbound on the southern motorway and southbound on the northern, uh, that peak is now right across the whole day. But so, you know, yeah, we've got to, to recognise we're driving the economy as well as getting people to and from uh, work. But those business uh, travellers, the couriers and the concrete trucks and the vans, are they going to pay their fair share out of this? Because uh, we've got this fuel tax coming up in which many businesses won't have to pay for it. That's exactly why we should be pricing the roads, not using petrol taxes as the primary revenue stream. Uh, of course they would pay their share if you had the right uh, pricing mechanism in place, and it's appropriate that they do, and it should be factored into their business decision-making about where they locate their businesses and all of those sorts of incentives. But petrol tax uh, alone will, uh, will, will hit the motorists, but it actually, unless it's on diesel, <laughs> it, it won't make the contribution. Uh, and that becomes a very uh, problematic issue. So, you know, you've got to get your revenue-raising tools targeted at those who use the service. So just, um, just to focus on that for a minute, because there's lots of talk about fuel taxes and motorway charges, there is an equity impact on poorer people here. How, how are we going to make sure that the people who can't really afford this stuff don't get pinged in, in the way that, you know, we have these um, tobacco taxes and all sorts of things. Well, there's, there's two ways in Auckland. So uh, Auckland is very specific. Uh, many of the well-to-do communities are closer into the CBD. So you don't really want a distance-based charge, which is common in other, uh, other jurisdictions, because if you have distance-based, then those who live in Manukau and Henderson, etc., uh, will end up paying a lot more money. So you need an access charge, not a distance charge. So you could get on the motorway, and I'm using the Southern as the example, uh, at Manukau for three bucks in the morning, you can drive as far as you like uh, for that three bucks. But if the person in Remuera who gets on, uh, when they could have actually taken a bus, walked or cycled because they had much better options, um, they will have to pay the same sort of fee for a much shorter trip. And that's designed to incentivise their behaviour. But also, for those that are truly disadvantaged, then you have to find another way of uh, supplementing their income. We do it with housing. There is no reason why we couldn't do it uh, with transportation. Peter. Um, e equity in terms of who pays is fundamentally important. And, and the work that the Consensus Building Group did in Auckland through 2013-14 spent quite a lot of time looking at that. You know, fuel taxes and, uh, have potential to be quite regressive 
poor people tend to live at the edge, edge of the city, they tend to travel to places where they don't have choices by public transport, they tend to work shifts or multiple jobs, which means that they drive a lot. Uh, fuel taxes disproportionately hit them. Alternatively, businesses that use diesel aren't caught by a petrol tax. So, so Excellent. Very great to hear. Um, the, uh, perhaps I should pay more attention to the detail. Um, the, the other thing that I wanted to say is that um, I'm a problem. White, middle-aged male, a, uh, I drive, I enjoy driving, um, unlike Cynthia. Um, my car is an extension of who I am and part of the perception of who I am. That's the generation I come from. Um, trying to get me to do something different will require a whole lot of effort. Um, my children are completely different. Um, they don't drive much. They catch public transport because that's how they've grown up. That's how they engage with the city. They have no expectation that they would drive to work and park a car. Um, and, and I think in, in the core of that is a quite significant opportunity for us in terms of the way that we deliver services, think about them, engage with people, uh, and, um, and also in terms of how we think about who the problems are in terms of the choices that they make and can afford to make. But politically, they don't have a voice because they don't vote so much. Sorry, Patrick. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's very clear we need to move to a form of road pricing because uh, electric vehicles alone will, will render um, fuel excise redundant. And especially um, my neighbour with his Tesla, um, he'd be very happy to, he wouldn't notice any kind of charge. But how we design it is completely critical. Um, the idea of simply charging the motorway system is fatally flawed. I mean, why did we build the motorways in the first place? To relieve the local roads. If we put a financial incentive for people to pour back onto Rat Run, the point of building Waterview will be lost. Every single car will be on Dominion Road. We know, we know, you, you, from, we you, know very clearly that people will go a long way to avoid paying too much. You don't bucks. understand the efficiency of demand management pricing that would actually increase the capacity of the motorway and actually allow more traffic to use it because more vehicles can access that Mount Wellington corridor at 60 k's an hour. Stephen, your little example was moment. very poor. Those, if you get 3,000 more vehicles through there in the AM peak, they just get to the next roadblock quicker. You, you know the point? You know that that's uh, no, designed because, that bottleneck. Because other people this will be making fun. other choices. <laughs> ding, ding. Um, and I'm curious too, I've taken an interest in behavioural economics in the last few years. Um, they now win the Nobel Prizes. And this rational economics view that people will see a 2 to $3 charge and um, get out their spreadsheets and work it out. Um, they just don't. I, they just jump you, off. I can tell you, Bernard. It is working today in the US, where they have managed motorway lanes. They're not Kiwis. <laughs> <laughs> you know what they call them, though, don't you, Stephen? They call them Lexus lanes, don't well, you? Well, maybe Kiwis are completely different. I don't know, but I suggest not. Look, I, it is it is happening right now. Where in uh, numerous, uh, in fact tens of motorway managed lanes where people pay a variable toll, they guarantee a speed of 50 miles an hour, uh, you pay the toll, you get the service, and people have the choice to go on a parallel uh, free lane which is congested. Um, so from that point of view, it is perfectly feasible, it is doable. Uh, we can talk about kind of long-term plans for congestion pricing, but Singapore haven't delivered their electronic uh, GPS-based system yet. 
uh, they're the leaders in the world in their context is quite remarkably different from Auckland. Cynthia. I, I'm still concerned that in Auckland we're talking about and it's progressive discussion and we should have this discussion. Australia's not game to have this discussion. Politically it's unpalatable. But we're still having a discussion where we've got a transport system. London, 180 years old. Sydney, 130 years old. Auckland, your, transport, your, net, your road network is 30, 50, I lost the years, 50 years old. Your public transport system is seven years old. So we should be having these conversations about the options, but the, you know, cars are a viable mode. Freight's got to be considered as it, it's you know, your productivity of Auckland. You've got to have a combination of buses, active transport, rail. We've got to get the balance right. We've got $12 billion. What do we do with that $12 billion to get that balance right? That's and we haven't got all the answers. For those people who have the mobile phones, the smartphones, and you've already logged on to slido.com on your uh, phone and put in the event code X115, now is your chance, if you haven't already done it, to uh, send us a very pithy question as opposed to a very long statement. A very pithy question like why or what with a few extra words, but really tight. So, and then we have a chance to um, take questions from the Slido. And actually, people have been doing this, and we've already got a few questions, and we'll throw them to the panel for a d discussion. So, and one of the things we're not going to do is go deep down into individual roads, if that's all right, because um, this is a broad citywide plan. So. Uh, I wanted to go to this question where we've got uh, the question, why don't we make the light rail crossing of the Manukau part of the old Mungary bridge replacement, reducing cost and negative visual impact of another bridge? So the question is, why don't we use that old Mungary bridge to, to do that? Anyone got a particular view on that? Well, we need to rebuild the old one even for people to walk across it. So we'll ah. have to do a new bridge, but that's a good alignment and uh, there's a good argument for that and it should be studied. I think you'll find that the piers of the new bridge are designed to support heavy rail and no, you can not. Do, no, do, do lots of things on it. Transit, pull that quick one up. Yes, so the next question we've got is, can we talk about other important issues like resilience, health and safety, energy? We haven't really talked much about climate change and carbon emissions tonight. We ought to. We, well, let's, let's, get, let's get into it because London has got this target of you know 2050 no carbon emissions. Can we actually do that in New Zealand? Because we're pretty addicted to our cars and diesel yeah, that, buses. Yeah, that's the worst argument I've ever heard, Bernard. <laughs> this <laughs> idea about personal character is really irrelevant. We, we, we need to... Supply leads demand. People use what there is. No one can catch a train that isn't there. What we, if we only build roads, people will drive. It's really easy. It's not about a character, a personal character, or a weird character that we have that other places don't have. Australians and Americans love their cars, and the, the same kind of men in Australia and America love their cars in the same way that Peter does. It, it isn't, we aren't uniquely different from anywhere else. Auckland is a city, and we have all of the rules that any city faces. So, we're Stephen. getting one. Stephen. Well, I think that, you know, I mean, that's just one of the attractions of concentrating growth in one location. Um, because it creates an opportunity to do a innovation kind of 
development. So you'd be looking at um, solar energy supply rather than uh, continued dependence on. Where we kind of retrofit in existing networks, it is always much harder to be innovative because you've got pockets of developments all over the place. Uh, but scale development in one location, uh, which would enable you to uh, bring on the latest technology, uh, both from energy, resilience, um, and live, work, play, uh, creates an opportunity to design our future rather than trying to retrofit. Uh, now, I'm not saying we shouldn't do development in the existing, of course we should, but that should be targeted much more closely at public transport corridors than allowing a little bit of growth everywhere. And the combination of the two would uh, potentially be transformational. Cynthia, the whole area of health and safety, you know, the deaths and serious injuries, how much of a factor should that be in the debate? I think the first thing I want to say is that uh, to be fair to the, uh, gov the local government here, the Mayor has actually made a commitment to C40. And he has said that with, um, from 2025, we will not buy any more public transport or put any more public transport on the roads that is not uh, zero emissions. So that's happening. Um, that's so seven years away. That's so pretty, pretty, pretty soon in the lifetime of a bus. It is, and it is. Understand that you probably have in Auckland the newest bus fleet that I've ever seen anywhere in the world. So understand that. You could change them. You could change them. You know, in a couple of years, I don't think you can afford to change the fleet. But so that's a sensible solution, is that as the fleet ages and you do a normal fleet replacement, you'd put it out and you'd change them then. So the Mayor has made that statement. I, you guys keep beating yourselves up. You have put in electric chains in the last few years. You have got... Uh, your transport is... There are high emissions from transport, and it's 30... It's, uh, 37%, don't quote me on the exact figure, of the emissions in Auckland are from transport. You talk, and we're talking about land transport. I haven't even had a discussion about what's happening off, off your harbour, although I did note uh, when we were at the um, Port Open Day the other day, they've made a, they've made a commitment that after, by 2050, I think, that they're going to be emissions free. There is an enormous amount being done. Um, Auckland Transport do little things like we're changing our fleet out to an electric fleet. So people are trying to do things. You're the most forward-thinking city in terms of, well, in terms of what a, a electric vehicle uptake. We've got to do more policy work in terms of electric vehicle uptake to make it more attractive. But I think you know there's a lot being done, and you are progressive. Um, it's not enough. We need to continue to have the conversations. But uh, the mayor and his uh, the, the councillors have made that commitment, so I think you know that is happening. Um, in terms of the thing that I'm alarmed about most at the moment is DSI rate. So your DSI death, meaning your deaths and serious injuries on right. your roads. So in the last three years, it's gone up by 78%. That is extraordinary. So you know I think people need to have to start having the conversation not only about getting out of cars. That's an obvious one because congestion is the biggest thing in your minds today until one of your loved ones is killed on the road and then that will be in the foremost of your minds. So we need to start thinking about having that conversation about why people are dying on our roads at a rate of about one a week. It's, and it's, that might be the wrong stat. Somebody said more than that. So, you know, the stats... The statistics are, that I looked on the MOT website, but we need to be having that conversation. Why are people dying on our roads? And there's a lot of reasons, and uh, 
but we need to start thinking about in, how we're going to invest to to uh, so so to, what sort of things that. could you do on the on motorway and other networks to reduce that rate? I think there's a lot that's been oh Patrick might want to. Do well, you? well, Vision Zero is the the obvious thing. This is what works everywhere else in the world, and we don't need to do local studies to find how we're different. We just need to adopt it and get on with it and make it policy. So, vis but Vision Vision Zero isn't in the current. <laughs> current plans? Uh, it, well, it's, it's government policy, um, and uh, it's certainly hinted at in the Auckland plan um, in slightly vague language, uh, but it needs to be adopted as, as firm strategy. Yeah. Right. We've got some couple of questions here about bikes. We haven't actually talked much about um, cycling here as part of the discussion. Um, what do our panel think about... Uh, you know, everyone using, or a lot more people using bikes, particularly the electric bikes, which um, there's a few hills in Auckland. I'm from Wellington. There's some real hills there. Um, they're quite useful. I think you should make answer the bike story. Yes, I'll, Peter. I'll, I'll surprise you because um, half the time I do actually commute to work on a, an electric bike, um, which you weren't expecting at all. And, and, and the issues are quite is it, simple. Is it, a, is it a Holden Commodore electric bike? It's, no, no, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice electric bike, pedal assist. Um, for, for me, the issues are simple. It rains a lot, and when it rains, it's not so nice, and it's, and it's um, less safe. Um, and whilst the, the cycle network is fantastic where it is, where you leave the dedicated cycle lane and into the traffic, um, it's not safe. So, you know, there's, for me, there's a whole lot of issues about how you manage that interface, um, where we need to spend more money in order to make it more attractive, and I, I think the balance tips quite quickly when you get into that space, and um, the health benefits of exercise along, alongside everything else, in my mind, makes and, it well worth pursuing. And are we actually including those health benefits in the sort of cost-benefit no, analysis? No, this is, this is a problem because um, along with death and serious injury, there's public health outcomes. So we are now suffering an, epi an absolute epidemic of what are called the diseases of inactivity. And, the, and this, this epidemic is, a, is principally a result of cars. So we drive because it's convenient uh, and, and we are not getting really simple daily exercise. So. The exercise you get uh, just walking to a public transport thing or, or riding a bike, that sort of daily exercise is incredibly valuable. It adds to your life, it, re it reduces um, heart disease, diabetes, etc., etc. We need to build this into our daily routine. And uh, cities and countries that have high levels of cycling and walking, like obviously um, the Dutch and, and the Danes, have amazing data on public health. It saves a nation a fortune. Um, and, and human misery is lowered. I mean, everything about the bicycle, it is, it is kind of the most, most magic pill. Uh, it's the most uh, energy, it, everything about it works. And we ought to be just doing everything we can to stimulate yeah, it. Yeah, but what about when it rains? Uh, there are things, there's this amazing technology called raincoats. Um, <laughs> that, it, it's new, I know, but um, you'll get there. Look, it's fair. The, the, Cities that are, that are well adapted for cycling, people, you know, that's minus 20 in those cities. I mean, we, hills and rain are, are, are small there. We know what works. It's building a safe network. When you yes, build a safe yeah. network, you get a transformational shift to cycling. It is. It is about the safety factor. You know, I ride bicycle as well, but I won't ride on a road where I have to share it with another vehicle. It just, you just can't feel safe. So, you know, you, it, Auckland has invested a lot in cycleways and will continue to invest in cycleways. My view is, you know, my personal view is that strategic cycle network has been hugely successful and it needs to be finished. 
But we then got to start, and people will go, you know, there's different opinions around the room, of course. But, you know, then we have to start focusing on how we how we get the kids to use the cycleways and how they're safe. You know, I would not let my son ride to school if he wasn't safe. So we've got to start focusing on that next generation of cycleways in terms of getting kids onto cycleways, not just adults. We all know what happens in the school holidays, right? Um, the, the roads get clearer, right? I mean, some people estimate, I've seen estimates, it's around 10% less traffic when kids aren't going to school. And we know what that traffic is. It's, it's parents dropping children off at schools. So it's simply a network of cycleways that were school-centred, and we get kids back to doing what they did in the, used to do um, and riding to school. They'll learn better, they'll be healthier, and uh, um, frankly, cycling's a joy, so long as you're not you know, sharing it with well, an 18-wheeler. I, mean, I love cycling. I cycle to and from work in, in Parliament up the Brooklyn Hill, for those who know Wellington. Um, that's a lot of fun. Up, it's a lot less fun. But um, we've had a debate in Wellington, uh, and I'm guessing you've had debates like this too, where attempts to put cycleways down uh, uh, roads have caused outrage amongst uh, car drivers. And you've had this um, incredible political clash between people saying, well, you just got rid of one of my car parks to make this thing, or you're forcing me to open my door out into a main road, um, I'm going to vote against that and get rid of that councillor that did that and stop it. How do you get around that political you know, reaction from people who are, who are against that stuff? Never will. People are allowed to have opinions and people, you know, they should share their opinions. I love the way Aucklanders do it. I love that we have conversations. In Australia, you just do what you like and then you don't worry about it. But, <laughs> so people don't get to say. But, you know, we, lobby groups are there for a reason. They keep bureaucracy honest. And so I, I, I think it's reasonable to have those discussions and you're allowed to have views either way. But we have to build the system for everyone to use to get, you know, I continue to harp about options, um, but it has to be safe. You know, at the end of the day, if it's not safe, people won't use it and we will have wasted our money. So we've got to make sure we get that right. So, you know, I think that as a, people are allowed, to, people should be allowed to have views and it's, it's just part of it. Change is always, change is always fraud. Yeah. It, it, there's nothing to see here, particularly. Yep. So we've got another question from our Slido system. What do the panel think about congestion charges to come into the city centre? A bit like one of those ring-type arrangements that they have in London. Um, I lived in London for a few years and got pinged by it a couple of times and, and pledged never again to drive my car into, into town. So uh, what do we think about London-style congestion ring-charged things? So, so my view is... Auckland, Auckland's not London. Auckland's a very weird shape. Long, skinny, two harbours, um, and, and the CBD accounts for, we were talking earlier, about 16% of employment, um, which means that anything that focuses just on that actually means a whole lot of people get a completely free ride, um, and it won't actually necessarily address the challenge. So um, I'm less convinced about being able to pick up something that is like that and say we'll have one of those, um, the charge, if, if we were to go down the, the, the route of a charging system, it's going to have to be a whole lot more broad than that to deliver uh, an impact that, that the transport network can cope with to deliver outcomes that are equitable in terms of who is paying and to avoid wholesale land use responses that are unanticipated. I mean, if, if you only charged around the CBD, for instance, 
then suddenly doing business in the CBD becomes less attractive. But actually we want lots of businesses to be there because that is the most cost-effective place to provide public transport where we've just spent a whole lot of money getting rail and now building CRL in order to support that sort of stuff. So you need to be quite careful as to how we think about these things. There's always boundary effects. London is starting to... London has been, was effective for the first four years, correct me if I'm wrong, and the effectiveness fell away after that first four years. They haven't been able to put the price up and it's hugely expensive. In my view it is, £12 is expensive for me, but you know, I think it, it did work for a little while. Um, then people changed the way they used big, you know, they stopped taking big trucks in there and now little trucks run around, the 3.5 tonne trucks run around in there, so it hasn't been as hugely successful as um, they would have liked to have been. And I spoke to the lady who used to work for Boris uh, when they put the, the congestion system in and, you know, people talk about congestion system as a revenue raiser. If we're talking about it as a revenue raiser, we're talking about it for the wrong reason. Another question uh, through the Slido system is around the, uh, the light rail um, idea, which uh, obviously the, the, the new government in Wellington uh, has, has talked about and has been talked about here as well. Is this the solution? Do we just need to whack down two or three of these light rail projects, create a nice loop around the city? Is that the way to go? Because they're, they're pretty expensive and, um, you know, it's no, a big nothing change. Nothing is the solution. Yep. So get that out of your head. <laughs> Yeah, look, I agree with that. Um, this is a multifaceted uh, issue we've got to deal with. Light rail undoubtedly will make a contribution. I think what, when we think about light rail, though, we've got to think about the urban planning that goes along with light rail. Um, just to uh, put it along a corridor to go to and from the airport as an airport uh, connection link, actually it's probably uh, not a particularly uh, marvellous economic investment, but if you could do significant urban development that would enable people uh, who might work in, uh, and be employed at the airport, who could live within proximity of the light rail um, and, and the city as well, obviously at the other end of the line, and points along, then you can start to get something viable. But we've got to think about transport and land use in a connected way, and too often we talk about transport projects by themselves or urban development by itself, and unless we join the dots between the two, uh, frankly, we're just self-defeating. Yeah, but where's the blue, ribbon? Where's the blue ribbon for me to cut, though? Where, how do I, you know, have a big, big announcement and, a, and a put on some high vis and cut the blue ribbon if you're talking about systems? Well, no, the, look, big, the big announcement then becomes the whole story around how we're growing the city in a much more sensible and smart way. So it's not just a light rail project, but it's also the housing project that goes with it, and it's the employment project that goes with it. That is a much uh, bigger announcement and a fantastic opportunity for any uh, politician. I mean, transport isn't an end in itself. Transport only has value in as, in as much as it, it supports land use. Uh, you know, they're the, they're the um, different sides of the same coin. So Stephen's absolutely right. So the, so the light rail program is a, is a great idea and a, and a really good plan, uh, but it must come with upzoning along its route. Um, so it, and and there's, people seem to lose their mind when you say the word airport. They seem to focus entirely on them getting on a jet. Uh, it's really not about that. It's about the entire journey all the way along, all the people working there, the people in Mangari who have very poor transport options and are very severed by the motorways through there. So it's upzoning along the route. Uh, Dominion Road is already semi-intense, and so it's a good place. The buses, as you said before, are full. It is a good, it's the ideal route through the Smith, but it needs to come with an upzoning again. 
along that route. Right, it is time Can now to... I just to say, the only yep, thing sorry. I would add to that, I think light rail is a good solution for the city. The city can't pay for it. It has to be paid for by central government. Ratepayers can't afford it. That whole point of um, public health, um, maybe that's a, a pitch you can make to Wellington to say that improved public health in Auckland through increased use of cycling and uh, of the bus with you know fewer car accidents and the like uh, could be paid for by um, cheaper hospital visits that the central government has to pay for. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult though to ask. I mean, the health system is underfunded, right? So. It, if, if you were to financialise all the economic benefits of public transport, you would actually have transfers from the health budget to subsidise public transport, but you cannot reasonably expect the health budget to be paying for a light rail system instead of a dialysis machine. Right? That would be quite a headline, yes. Yeah. Uh, but it is, uh, it is interesting that maybe there needs to be a more integrated approach to funding this. And we haven't actually talked about the real elephant in the room, which is the current government's adherence to a 20% of net debt target, which is actually stopping um, Auckland and the rest of the country from building the infrastructure it actually needs for the next generation. Um, my, in my view, for what it's worth, uh, that 20% debt target is going to make whatever you want to do over the next 10 years really difficult for no good reason. It's time now to open it up to questions from the audience, a bit like the uh, Joseph Parker fight where we invite the audience to come into the ring. Um, uh, it's safe, really it is. But we are going to ask people to put their hands up and I'm going pick to pick people, but I, I really want to uh, ask you nicely at the moment ask you nicely to keep your questions tight and they must have a question mark at the end of it. If it's got a full stop or an exclamation mark, not so interested. Question mark, please. So, yes, do we, we have the um, microphone as well? So over here, yes, we have someone. Yes, yep. go for it. Good evening, my name's Cam. I stand before you as a human being and uh, someone interested in behaviour change. Uh, in AT's 2017 report under strategic theme number two, AT proclaims 93% punctuality when in fact real-time analysis at each stop shows far lower than this. So this arguably impacts on uh, customer satisfaction and uptake of ridership, which is sort of uh, detrimental to what we want to achieve. So my question is two-part. What data do AT use to measure customer satisfaction and number two, why do we bother measuring punctuality for our public transport uh, when it's measured only at the origin? Good questions. They are good questions. Uh, they're not the only person in the world that, you know, not the only city in the world that uh, measures punctuality by origin. For me, that's just, it doesn't measure anything. So. If you talk about, and we did it in Brisbane, we started out, and it's a maturity thing, you've got to start to mature your public transport system so people understand that reliability is not about, and punctuality is not about you're punctual because you leave the bus depot at 7 o'clock when you're supposed to. It's about the whole, you know, the whole route. Um, we have to understand that and work more on it. I can't speak to, you know, I've been in the job six months, so we know about it, we've got to work on it. I'm surprised about the customer satisfaction story because uh, it's my team who actually goes out and talks to customers and the customer satisfaction rate is hugely... You know, I'm, I was shocked about it and I tried to investigate a little bit. But, you know, the, we're talking about a 91% customer satisfaction rate. Now, delving into it, 
Um, it's pretty robust in what I've seen. I hear, you know, you'll hear bad stories on public transport wherever you go in the world. You know, it was late, it was raining, the trains didn't run on time, we've got a strike. Um, but, you know, I think we are trying to look at that more robustly. Um, we're ha starting to have discussions. Have we got the an all the answers yet? No, we don't. But your point is valid. How do you actually measure that reliability, uh, the punctuality based on it leaves the depot at that time? So Patrick, it, it's yeah. a good point. Yeah. I, I think I think there's, there's two things. Um, one of which is that the uh, you can get perverse incentives. Um, Eighty has brought the idea that at board level that uh, reliability is the is the most important thing. Uh, the, the big KPI for the public transport providers. And the problem with this means is that they, they pad the timetable and then sit outside the station or the stop to get there on time. And then they're really reliable, right? But there's nothing more annoying on this planet than sitting on, in, in a train or a bus with the engine off waiting. I mean, so reliability cannot be the only KPI. Um, for a service, because you just get really big padded routes, especially with, when, when there's a lack of bus lanes, so there's a really unpredictable length of journey. Um, if the road's clear, ironically, you may end up at a stop waiting <laughs> because the road's too clear and, and the, the proposed time is too long. So th th this, is a, this is a real bus operations so, so issue and needs to be dug right down into. Cynthia. Uh, just quickly, um, you don't need to harp on it, everybody's right. World's best practice talks about reliability in public transport system. So people write contracts around public transport around reliability. They will deliver a reliable service and tell you they deliver it at all costs to the customer. Yeah. You've got to change, you know, we are having that discussion at the moment about how we actually become more customer centric and more customer focused and what does the customer want. But world's best practice, Auckland Transport is applying KPIs that are world's best practice. We need to be ahead of the curve and think differently, that's all. So we have another question here at the back. Hello, Hugh Chapman. Uh, we've had four or five speakers talking about the big picture getting more money. But I think there are a lot of things that aren't being done and can be done. For example, coordinating lights. I know that's against the council's opinion because that helps motorists, but that's where the congestion is occurring. If you coordinate lights, and let's face it, I've driven through Wellington every time I've gone there, straight through the middle of the city without stopping, all of a sudden you're going to get people coming into town earlier in the morning, getting to work, parking, and they're off the road. We are spending too long getting stuck in traffic. Fanshawe Street coming off, I know you're talking streets, that's blocked. It should be 90% green lighted so you can get off the motorway. Then people can come into Auckland. So that's a, a good lot question. Of things like that, none of the people there are the people who are going to make this decision, but I'd like to hear their comments. Sure. On that. So it's a good question about coordination of lights. Can that be done? Good idea. I was uh, quip on that one. It was an interesting conversation when you talk about driverless cars, um, but we can't coordinate the traffic lights. Um, you know, there's got to be there's got to be a better outcome. I, I'm a, I, Hugh, I'd love to give you the answer for that, but um, you know, how many times do we see uh, sequence after sequence of red light changes? We go down uh, major urban arterials in Auckland. Um, there's got to be something better we can do. So. There, there is a really simple geographic or geometric answer to this, Hugh, which is that if you've got a green light, everyone else has got a red one including all of those pedestrians trying to get across Fanshawe Street. 
I mean, I know it's a really lovely idea that you should always have a green light, or I should always have a green light, but I haven't got that magic button in my car. Okay, we've got another question at the back here. Yes. I'm, I'm a pedestrian mainly. Why are the pavements so awful? I have also have a disability, so I'm constantly in fear as I walk from my apartment in Freeman's, Freeman's Bay to the library or to the hospital. The pavements are terrible. I, I can okay, let's talk one. about I can, walking. So, I can um, this one. Pa Patrick, there, there is there is one contributor to that, and that is that all uh, local road funding in the whole country is half, roughly half funded by the, your local authority. In, in Auckland's case, that's Auckland Transport, and half funded from the National Land Transport Fund, uh, as directed by NZTA. But NZTA, bless their little cotton socks, refuse to contribute to footpaths. So. Any, any local government member, Auckland Transport here or all around the country has got a decision to make. They can either spend this sum on a road and get it doubled, or if they fix that footpath, they've got to fund it entirely themselves. So there's a, there's an, a, a financial incentive for local authorities to not bother fixing footpaths. So shouldn't that be like an ATAP, ATAP you know, let's build a systems thing? Because, you know, yep. and I'm curious about that. Cynthia. To be truthful, I haven't really had time to focus on footpaths, to be truthful to date. But you know, I've been out on the network as much as I can. I've met people at uh, intersections that have been noted that's the worst intersection in New Zealand um, and uh, needs money spent on it. I've been out to uh, roads that are you know, well underdone and, and don't help local traffic and are not safe. I've done as much as I can. I haven't focused on footpaths. I'd need to do I need to have a look at footpaths obviously because I hear all the time that the local boards and the community are frustrated with footpaths. So we need to actually I will take it back and have a look at footpaths. I honestly can't answer you today. I don't know what the net, how big the network are, is for footpaths. I do know we've got 7,468 or 69 kilometres of roads, but I can't tell you footpaths. So if uh, I'm happy if, to have a chat with that lady about at some stage, but I honestly haven't. It hasn't been in my focus, but it needs to be, so I'll have to take it on notice. Apologies. Very, very briefly, I mean, the same, we talked earlier about being fixated on the bright, new, shiny things and dealing with the second order of stuff and the third order of stuff, and my sense is we, we tend to forget about footpaths, and we shouldn't. They are a really important part of the network. Um, public transport works or doesn't work because of whether or not you can actually get to where you need to catch the train Drivers or the bus. Drivers occasionally get out of cars. And, and, uh, and they do. And the other thing that I would note, um, ha having living in an area where Auckland Transport, as a result of Auckland City Council's previous decisions, has been replacing footpaths with concrete, um, they're only there five minutes before some developers dug them up and replaced them with something else and made it look and and behave quite differently in a way that's not safe. So the continuing challenge to manage. Yes, and the tyranny of the orange cones with all that UFB digging up of footpaths, which um, great fun for Netflix um, because it gets its uh, service subsidised, but not much fun on a footpath. Yes, we have one final question here. I'm Greg. Um, to use a business analogy, it seems that our city operates below break even. Um, and some of the panellists have talked about planned urban development and satellite cities and so forth. What do you think is the uh, sweet spot for our population or population density for us to be able to afford a viable public transport structure? That's a fair question and a good one. It is a good 
Well, well, there isn't there isn't a perfect one. Um, Auckland is actually su surprisingly more dense than people imagine. It's the second densest city in Australasia behind Sydney. Um, density, of course, is never even. It's it, and and you can see exactly where uh, public transport is is much more heavily patronised. A, where it is, and secondly, in some of our denser areas. So Ismith, for example, is actually quite uh, a, a really solid medium density. Uh, the central city is not only the fastest growing area in the country; it is also really dense at about ten thousand per um, square kilometre. Um, th these are high levels. Uh, Auckland over the last 25 years has grown about 70, 75% up and 25% out. You can see those sprawl burbs, they look big, but actually more people are, are living in. Auckland is, people, this is choice, this is revealed preference. People are choosing to live in apartments in the central city. People are choosing proximity. Uh, there isn't, we don't need to wait until we're Tokyo or Manhattan before we have a good public transport network, for example. But the, the key point is that the best the most efficient journey is, in fact, the one that you don't need to take because you're already there. So proximity trumps mobility. I can't give you a, a number off the top of my head, but I tell you what density doesn't work, is when you put density, even medium density, in and you don't provide any public transport yeah, services. Yeah. So, so uh, many of you will be familiar with Flatbush. Right, I used to live in Botany, close to Flatbush, where they reduced the sections where I was from 650 square metres down to sort of 350 and 250, and the houses went up. Um, no public transport services of any credibility, you know, sort of one-hour gaps between uh, bus services um, kind of at peak, and they didn't really go to destinations that people any didn't uh, wanted to go to. And that's because Auckland Transport didn't have the money to put the services in place in the first place. And so it's exactly what I described before, increased density, more, more cars per urban, uh, square kilometre of urban development than we ever had before under traditional urban sprawl. So getting the density right with the transport services, the public transport services, is fundamental to doing this properly into the future. And that's the really important lesson we've got to learn. Right, I would like to, on behalf of the audience, I know there's a hundred more questions because this is a fantastic debate and it's something we're all passionate about. The panellists are around and a few people are around afterwards and of course you've got lots of opportunities to have your say and ask the questions on the website, uh, which is akhaveyoursay.nz, akhaveyoursay.nz. Uh, we really appreciate you coming here tonight. We have to go. Um, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of people watching on streaming who would love to throw questions at us too, but it is time to go. Please join with me in thanking our panel. And now we shall all use our transport system to get home, and I'm about to jump on the bus to the airport, which cost me $15. It's fantastic. Go the bus. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.